Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians again. We're back into Ephesians chapter 5. We spent two weeks on the last half of Ephesians 5.18, and we'll finish up our study of this important issue and this critical factor for living out our Christian lives in the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Let me read that paragraph for us just to set it in our minds afresh. Ephesians 5, verse 17, Paul says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I want to invite you to remember with me what we considered just a few weeks ago on our Easter celebration, and that is that last week, that last night before the Lord's crucifixion, it was Thursday night, final meal with the, with the disciples, Jesus would be crucified just a few hours later. So the Lord has a final session of teaching with these men who he had invested three years with. It's the last meeting he would have with them before his suffering. It begins in the upper room and then spills down over the eastern ridge of the Temple Mount among the vine groves and the the grapes, it ends in the Kidron Valley and is isolated in a little garden of olive trees called Gethsemane. The disciples, in short, are scared. They're terrified. They're troubled. And you would have been too. Jesus has made quite a disturbance in Jerusalem during this week of Passover the crowds were thronging to him only to now in a few hours be turned against him. The Jewish leadership has plotted murderously against him. They are jealous. They are envious. Who is this upshot from Galilee who's now threatening their authority and their popularity? They knew exactly who he was and were out to get him by silencing him forever by execution. Jesus in the midst of this, is very well aware of his coming suffering. It's important to remember that this is no surprise to the Lord. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Those were all in Jerusalem, so he was forecasting what would happen when they returned to Jerusalem. After three days, he would rise again. Mark 9, 30, from there they went and began to teach through all Galilee. He was teaching the disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he has been killed, they will rise again three days later. But they did not understand this statement, Mark tells us, and they were afraid to ask. 
A third occasion in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered into the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. We'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. The first time that he tells them it will be by crucifix. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then again in Matthew 26, right before this Passover week, he had finished all these words. And Matthew 26, 1 says, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. One of the strangest anomalies about these these statements that the Lord gave is how, how the disciples could have heard this at least four times I just gave you and not been rocked when he told them. Well, we seem to have an indication here at the Upper Room Discourse that some things are starting to get clearer and they're terrified and they're troubled. How do we know that? Because on that Thursday evening in the Upper Room, Jesus says in Chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Do not let your heart be troubled. You don't tell someone, don't be troubled, unless, drumroll, they are troubled. <laughs> believe also in, believe in God and believe also in me. And then he gives them almost a riddle that he wants them to get wrong so he can correct. In my father's house, stop right there. My father's house had been referred to over and over by Jesus as the temple, which was about 800 yards from where they were sitting for this upper room discourse. Half mile. In my father's house are many, it's not mansions as the King James says, and it's not really even dwelling places, it's rooms. In my father's house are many rooms and on the southern part of the Temple Mount, there were, there were a, a line of apartments two or three stories high. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, a room for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. They had no doubt thought, well, okay, everybody's after Jesus. And if they're after Jesus, they're after him. He's telling us he's going to leave us. He's going to come and get us, but he's going to make a room for us. He's no doubt going down to the temple mount to get our rooms ready for when he declares himself king tomorrow and we all live happily ever after. Then he says this, and you know the way I'm going. I think what he was baiting them to say is they thought he was going over 800 yards to the temple mount to get their rooms ready for when they were going to rule and reign with him where they would sit in the kingdom. And you know the way I'm going. Why is that important? Because people were after them. Which way are we going to get there? King David Street, take a right, drop down to the temple mount? There is a King David Street right there, by the way. How, how do we go where we're not caught? You know the way I'm going. Dead silence. And then Thomas speaks up and says, um, um, Lord, we, 
we do not know where you're going, and how do we know the way to get there? Then he crashes their understanding with clarity when he says, I'm the path, I'm the road, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes, not to the Father's house, he changes it, he says, to the Father, except through me. Speaking of heaven, not the Temple Mount. Here's the question then. I mean, this is coming in real time to the disciples. Here's the problem. Here's what they're asking. If Jesus is so wonderful, if Jesus is the King, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is Lord and Savior, if He's going to rule and reign, what happens when He leaves, if He leaves? Because He just told us He's leaving. I think the best way to imagine the heart of our Lord on this last Thursday night before His execution just a few hours before his death, weeks before his ascension into heaven, is to understand that he is graciously preparing them and us vicariously through John's gospel for how to live life with him without him. How are they to experience the living presence of Jesus as he said he would always be with them if he's gone how could they experience God with them if he's not with them? And I think John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are exactly meant to teach how you live with an invisible Savior, how you live life with Christ and without him. And at the heart of that was a promise he left them with in John 14. I'm going to leave you, he says. I'm going to be gone. Now, that was a couple of stages. He'd be gone on the crucifixion the next day, then six weeks of instruction. Then he would be ascended in Acts chapter 1. He would be gone from this earth for the rest of their lives. So they're a little understandably freaked out. And he says, I will ask the Father, and really important word here, and I will give you another helper, another paraclete, para alongside kaleo, another one who comes alongside you, another helper. It's a good, good translation. Notice he doesn't say a helper, but another one. He had already been that for them. He says, when I'm gone, I got you covered. I'm going to send someone else to be better for you than I've been with you. You say, how could that be? He says he will be Better than I was. How? Because he would never leave them. They had times when Jesus would go off and to the wilderness by himself or go. No, he would never, ever be apart from them. How do we know that? He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And they're saying, another helper? Is this, this Messiah 2.0? Who's coming? That is... The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Then he also says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Spirit of Jesus will come back. And then he says in verse 23, the Father and I will come and make our abode with him. And as we studied last time, the whole Trinity permanently abides with a believer. But the primary access we have to the Father, the primary encourager we have to remember the Son and worship him 
is the giving of another helper, the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? Because if the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to be with us, and if the Father and the Son have promised to accompany Him to walk with us, then our response and receptivity to God's permanently abiding presence is essential to our walk as Christians. We have to have a clue about what it means to walk with God, what it means to have an invisible Savior, what it means to have life with Jesus without Him in the flesh. Said another way, what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. How do we do that? Consequently, Paul now here in Ephesians 5.18, in the last half of that verse, instructs us to be filled with that spirit who was promised. And we looked at last time, this word filled is plerao. It's an interesting word. It means to influence, to move, to have causation with. It was used of the wind inside a sail that moved a ship. It plerao'd the ship. It moved the ship. It influenced it. You'll remember that to be filled with the Spirit, and we looked at this in depth, is in the imperative mood, meaning, it's, meaning that it's a command, do this. It's in the present tense, means, meaning you have to do it in an ongoing fashion. It's an ongoing command to be repeated. But it's also in the passive voice, meaning that it's something that's done to us. Be filled. Something you do that has to be done to you. It's a strange command. And it, we spoke about the fact that this means it's our disposition to be receptive to him. Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger write this. The expected or intended response to this command is for Christians to yield to the Holy Spirit, to be controlled, pervaded, or permeated by the Spirit in all their ways, to consciously place themselves under the guidance of the Spirit moment by moment. What a great phrase to consciously place themselves under the guidance of the Spirit moment by moment. That's what it means to be filled with or by or in the Spirit. That's what it means to be influenced, permeated, pervaded by the Spirit. So we talked about this, the exegesis of that last little phrase in verse 18 in our last time, and for this morning, what I want to do is flesh that out a little bit. We're adding some thoughts to what it means to respond to God graciously serving us by giving us His Spirit to walk with. How can we improve our walk with the Spirit? Our title is Life with the Spirit of God. Now, just a little, uh, little fun with Greek the word be filled with the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, be filled in the Spirit, you'll hear it always because the little preposition epsilon nu, n, can mean in, with, or by. Be filled in the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and you'd be correct in any one of those designations. How can we improve our walk alongside the Spirit? How can we improve our receptivity to Him? Well, I'm not going to try to be comprehensive, but, but rather just helpful with this. How can you be filled with the Spirit? Or in said in other ways, how can you 
improve your walk with the Spirit of God, I'm going to give you five improvements very fast. Five improvements for a better walk with the Spirit of God. I say improvements because there's nothing you can do to get it. You can only improve in your receptivity to Him. This filling, this filling that, that He gives us is not something that you can start, but a walk with Him is something you can improve. Five improvements for a better walk with the Spirit of God. The first is something we alluded to last time. It's awareness. Improve awareness. You could even say improve my awareness. Improve your awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence. Improve your awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence. We've talked about this before, but the first most basic thing we must do to walk with the permanent abiding Spirit of God in the life of a believer is, or to be filled with the Spirit is to know about it. It's to be aware of Him. This filling, this presence, is something you must know about it. About. Let's review some basic theology. Every Christian has been baptized, as we saw last time, with the Spirit at conversion. This simply means that we enjoy His permanent abiding presence with us. He's our helper who is sent by the Father and the Son to walk life alongside us. Don't make too much of the fact that He is in you. I know that we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you can also talk about the withdwelling of the Holy Spirit. He was with you. He will be in you. It's both. He's with us. He's in us. He's around us. Doesn't mean if you were in an accident and lost your little finger and a saw took it off that you, you can now be filled less with the Holy Spirit because you have less of you. No, no, no. Every believer enjoys the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit along with the Father and the Son, as we learned from John 14. The Holy Spirit is Himself, God Himself, and being filled with the Spirit means being influenced by Him through yielding to the Word of God. That's a summary of what we covered last time. Now, the Holy Spirit is amazingly active. Just a brief survey, brief survey, I can't do it in one breath, but a brief survey of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. He convicts, he condemns, he comforts, he illumines. He rejoices over our attitudes and actions. He grieves over our attitudes and actions. He regenerates the human heart. He counsels, he baptizes, he grants gifts. He seals our salvation. He indwells the believer. He grants gifts to the members of the church. He reveals the mind of God to our hearts. He reveals and reminds us of Jesus. He generates fellowship between believers. He draws us. He woos us. He saves us. He even prays for us. He's active. And it's all too easy, though, after a list like that, to live, to behave, and to act as if we have no relationship or awareness of the Spirit with us. I think that's because of two potential kinds of ignorance. The first is you're ignorant. You, you just don't know. You need to be instructed. For the believers in Ephesus, Paul came and says, have you had the Holy Spirit? He says, we don't even know if there's a Holy Spirit. They, didn't, they literally were ignorant. of. They didn't know. So he instructed them. But I think there's a worse ignorance, and that is ignoring Him. Knowing that He is 
with us, knowing that his presence abides with us forever and just stiff-arming that out of our mind, ignoring it, and pretending as if he is not with us. Well, as blood-bought sons and daughters of God, let me encourage you, you should have a thorough and a developing pneumatology or theology of the Holy Spirit. You need to be lifelong pneumatologists. What that means is a lifelong studier and developer of expertise about our precious Holy Spirit given to us by God. Every sin of our mind, every sin we commit with our body is, I believe, a result of not acting like or ignoring that we have a relationship with the permanent abiding Spirit of God with us. So the key to maintaining this awareness is repeated study of our precious paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us. I think it's interesting, Paul tells the Ephesians, be filled, be moved, be influenced by the Spirit. But to the Galatians, he says in five, Galatians 5.16, I say, walk by the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. There's another way to translate that. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in synchronized fashion with Him. All of us know what this means and knows what it's like. We've, we've all been to picnics or, or, or parties where you did the three-legged race with someone. You know what that's like. You, you get a, a, you're standing next to your, your partner, and both of you put your, your, your leg into one bag, or you bind them together, and so there's really three legs, two in one between, between you, and, and you try to run or walk. And if you're not in sync, it's a disaster. It's hilarious to watch. We are bound in a permanent abiding relationship and presence with the Spirit of God, and we are called to keep in step with Him, walk in sync with Him, not look like the, the silly people who can't do that and fall all over themselves in a three-legged race. We are to walk in synchronization with Him. Why? Listen to the contrast. But I say, Galatians 5.16 again, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You say, what does that mean, Paul? He tells us, tells us, for the flesh, your unredeemed humanness, sets its desire against the Spirit. You are in an internal battle with God Almighty from the inclinations of your flesh. So am I. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you please. There's the rub. There's why we struggle as believers. There's a conflict and either we're listening to the desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit. Then he goes on to list the deeds of the flesh which are evident. These are the temptations that the flesh whispers into our eye, into our minds. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's not a complete list. But, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, if you're walking in step with the Spirit, if you're walking with the Spirit, 
Here's what happens. This is interesting, by the way. These are not things you pursue. They are things that happen because you pursue the Spirit. These are happen. You become like Christ. Listen to how this sounds like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then in verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, if you have life because of the Spirit of God, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walk in step. Keep in step with the Spirit. So to live in concert with the Spirit of God who is ever with us means fundamental and even radical changes within us and awareness that these are possible because He is with us. Christians walking with the awareness of the Spirit of God begin to act like Jesus. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the simple question. Am I yielding to the promptings of my sinful, selfish flesh or the promptings of the Spirit of God abiding with me? Am I yielding to the promptings of my sinful flesh selfishly or am I yielding to the promptings of the Spirit of God abiding with me? Now, let, let, me, let me say something that might surprise some people. I fully believe in the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the mind and heart of a believer. Kim and I were just out of town and took a couple of Uber rides with, with different drivers. And both times, we were picked up from the airport, we were given a ride back to the airport. Both times, the guy picks us up, we have some small talk, and I... I feel this prompting. I need to tell this guy about the Lord. I should tell him the gospel. Now let's do some calculus. Did that prompting come from my flesh? No, I know my flesh. I'm lazy. I'm a chicken. I, I, no, it didn't come from my Did that prompting come from the devil? Did the devil prompt him to say, tell him the gospel, how he can be saved from hell and go to heaven? No! Where do you think that prompting came from? It's the Spirit of God. Do you believe, will you believe that the Spirit of God is operative and present with you and taps your soul on the shoulder with promptings to do what's right, to do what's pleasing to the Lord? I can promise you your flesh taps you on the shoulder all the time. You say, how does he tap me on the shoulder? Well, that's where we go to our second improvement. Improve awareness of His presence. Improve intake of biblical sustenance. The Holy Spirit taps on the shoulder of your soul through promptings, primarily through you knowing the Word of God. Now, we have to shift back to verse 17 to get a, a momentum on this. So then, Ephesians 5, 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, understand what God wants you to do, who God wants you to be, God's intentionality, God's will. Do you know what God's will for your life is? Do you know God's heart for your life in such a way that you can actually make real-time decisions about what you can Understand the will of the Lord to be because those promptings are happening from a valuable understanding of God's word. 
God's will is intended, his intended desire for his children is clearly laid out in his revelation and it was spoken in the Bible, his word. So we are called to understand this will so we can live out this will. In the parallel text to this passage in Colossians, we studied this last week, Paul says in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, there's a, there's a, a, a very pronounced in-order list of the consequences. You'll sing with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You will uh, give thanks to the Lord. Uh, husbands and wives will operate in their God-given roles. Uh, parents and children will operate in their God-given roles. Employers and employees will operate in their God-given roles. The exact same list in the exact same order is given in Colossians, except in saying this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. It's the result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Those are synonyms. So improving intake of biblical sustenance is actually giving lots of opportunity and data for the Holy Spirit to prompt us by tapping our shoulder, the shoulder of our soul. How can we be influenced by the Spirit of God? By being influenced and changed by the Word of God. You know, we joke about this all the time, and I I think it's a little silly, but, you know, sometimes I say, is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes, and people laugh. It is! You cannot be healthy as a believer without the sustenance of Bible intake, the Scriptures changing your life. Oh, can I ask you, do you... Do you, when you miss time in God's word, do you feel it? Do you sense it? Is it like missing a meal? I don't like missing meals. And my body feels it when I do. Does your soul Feel it when you miss the spiritual meal of God's word. Wow, wow. It, it, <laughs> if you don't, we need to chat. You need to talk to someone. That's a, that's a sad, scary state. Man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, meaning it's our sustenance. You know the passage very well, 2 Peter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything for life and godliness. That's comprehensive. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, that's only found in one place. That's the living word of God, the Bible. What kindness and grace we have in the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's word and to apply God's word and to love God's word. We find divine guidance from him through God's word. We find conviction for our sin from the Holy Spirit through the word. We have comfort and care from the Holy Spirit through the word of God. We have assurance of salvation from the Holy Spirit in the word of God. We have divine enablement, power to obey, the ability to please the Father through the word of God. Romans 4 says 
that we have the power of the resurrection. Every, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to us to obey because of the Spirit's presence in our life. That's power. All comes from having our minds and hearts changed by being exposed to, believing, and applying the scriptures. So, I mean, I'm weary of, of asking. Can I ask you again? Do you read your Bible? Do you study to understand your Bible? Do you memorize the scriptures? Do you, do you think about the scriptures? That's called meditation. Do you talk about it with your friends? Are you improving intake of biblical sustenance, which is a means that God has given us for a better walk with his permanent abiding spirit? Number three, improve the fight against sinful entanglements. Now, this is worthy of a whole series by itself, but let me just mention what you know well. Improve the fight against sinful entanglements. I told you last time we would be looking at Romans 8. You can turn over there if you, if you will. Romans chapter 8. Most of the chapter is talking about our relationship with the Spirit of God. Let me anchor our thoughts to just a few verses. Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, those sinful promptings to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That doesn't end well. But if by the Spirit, if you're living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body or the flesh, and you will live. There's a battle. We're fighting against sinful entanglements. Thanatao, thanatos, death, put it to death. By the way, that was the same word used in Mark 14, 55. They put Jesus to death. That word is used here, put to death the deeds of the body. Figuratively, it means to stop, to put a stop to, to exterminate, to cause to cease. It's not the only place Paul talks about this doctrine. Do not Offer the parts of your body to sin, Romans 6.13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. This is the doctrine of mortification. That's a graphic word. It means to kill. It's the doctrine of killing your sinful desires and keeping them in check. Colossians 3.5. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, or greed, which is idolatry. Galatians 6, 8, For the one who sows to his, his flesh from the flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 5, 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. That's a graphic illustration. Because when these believers read the word crucifixion, they thought of the horrific execution of their Lord. He says, crucify, crucify your sinful nature. Put it on a cross and kill it with its passions, with its desires. 
Now let me read what I read a moment ago in Colossians 3, 5 in context. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed for him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. 1 Peter 4.2, it's all over. We live to the, re the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. But perhaps the most compelling passage we've studied many times and it's worth repeating and reminding is the Lord himself when he was talking about the sin of mortification, killing sinful desire. In Matthew 5, 27 said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And you had some Pharisees standing around who thought, I haven't done that, pretty good. Made the cut. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, while they were standing in stunned shock at that statement, he goes deeper. If your right eye makes you stumble, he says, tear it out. Throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right eye makes you stumble, cut it out. Throw it far from you. It's better for you to lose one of the body parts, your body parts, than for your whole body to go into hell. You remember, Jesus is not being literal. Why, how do we know that? Because if you want to diminish the effectiveness of your eye, if you pluck it out, that's plenty. It's not going to work anymore. Or if you want to diminish the usefulness of your right hand, cut it off. It's not going to help you anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, pluck your eye out, cut your hand off, and then I hope you're left-handed, and throw it far from you. Get into what radical means, not literally, but figuratively, and literally if you have to do literal things to diminish the promptings and the tapping on your shoulder of sin. Ah, but perhaps the most exciting reason for all of us to live lives of holiness with the Spirit of God is in Romans 8, 6, 8 14. All who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons and daughters of God. So the Spirit is leading us to be better children of God. John Owen writes about mortification. To mortify means, listen to this, to take away all the strength and vigor and power of sin so that it cannot act on its own or exert influence in the life of, of a believer. You're cutting it off when you can. This entails not only the fruit of sin in the external behavior patterns, but also the root of sin internally regarding our motives and desires. Are you willing, by the power of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, when you have evil thoughts, evil desires, to deal with them at that level so they don't become acted upon. Mortification is putting to death. It's slaying the deeds of the body and flesh. You're not ever going to eliminate sin, but you can fight it and have traction in resisting it. Owen says, mortification involves the habitual Weakening of sin 
and constant fighting against it with a measure of success. The battle needs to be perpetual because each manifestation of sin contains the seeds of sin's evil dominion and inclines the heart to the same end. There is a necessary universal crucifying of the flesh by which sin is weakened. Do you see that weakened and strengthening language? Either we're strengthening our desires of the flesh, our sinful inclinations and feeding them, or we're feeding the Spirit's influence and access to our hearts and those promptings by knowing the Word of God. MacArthur writes, mortification involves the cultivation of new habits of godliness combined with the elimination of old sinful habits from our behavior. It's a constant warfare that takes place within the believer. Although we should expect our triumph over sin to be ever increasing, our mortification can never be wholly complete before we're glorified. We are to remain perpetually committed to the task. We must see sin as our sworn enemy and commit ourselves to slaying it wherever and whenever it rears its head. Is sin your sin? The sin that so easily entangles you. Is your sin your sworn enemy? Can we wake up each morning and say, battle on? Game on. Sin is coming. Temptation will be prompting me and tapping me on my shoulder all day. I'm ready for the battle. This little phrase is the most encouraging part of our battle. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. The Spirit of God sees us. He lives with us. He watches us 24-7. He knows us. He knows we're weak. He's there to support us in our weaknesses. Very short. Improved perspective of now and eternity. Number four. If you want to improve in your walk with the Lord, improve perspective on now and eternity. This is just picking up from what we already studied back in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Christ, after you also, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, were sealed, past tense, were sealed in him with the promise, future tense, of the Holy Spirit, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance, something that's future, eternal, with a view of redemption to God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. The point is simple. God sealed us with His Spirit as a promise for future inheritance with Him. This is talking about faith and sight. The Holy Spirit was given to us as our helper to walk by faith and in faith. But he says, you don't have to walk by faith forever. There is sight. You will be relieved with sight. How? By keeping Jesus as focus. John 16, 14. The Holy Spirit will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit points to Christ. And that gives us an eternal perspective for the one who waits for us in eternity. Number five, 
Five improvements for a better walk with the Spirit of God. Improve awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence, number one. Number two, improve intake of biblical sustenance. Number three, improve the fight against sinful entanglements. Number four, improve perspective of now and eternity. And number five, this is so encouraging. Improve cooperation with spiritual siblings. This is a, something we do together. 1 Corinthians 6 informs us that God not only permanently abides with the individual believer, he also indwells the church corporately, our local body of Christ. We've talked about this before. I love talking about it because you see how wonderfully Southern Paul was, and it doesn't come through the, tr the translation. He used you and y'all to distinguish singular and plural. So those of us who grew up in the South, we were taught very biblically about language. 1 Corinthians 6 he says, verse 19, do you, singular, not know that y'all's, plural, y'all's singular body, hear the singular and plural, do you, individual, not know that all of y'all's body, singular, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, singular? This is incredible. Now, I don't want to blow up anybody's Belief, if, if, if you believe that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that helps you not to sin, the, the Holy Spirit's with you and you're not going to be too far off. But that's not what this verse is talking about. When he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's stronger than that. He's saying y'all's singular body, your church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't diminish in any in any measure, his permanent abiding presence with us. If you like the illustration of your body being a temple, that you're not theologically in error. That's just not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about us together. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit together. That has immense implications for how we interact with each other, how we encourage each other, how we confront each other, how we correct each other, how we pray with each other, why we love each other. So are you walking with the Spirit of God? If so, you should be turning to Him first when you're in times of trouble. You should be offended by worldliness. He came to convict the world of sin. The world's sin should bother us. You should be sensitive to personal sin that you can do something about. And we should be wooed and encouraged by his comfort and his peace. As I said, the problem is that we, as puny, finite humans, can easily forget the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence of God the Spirit who's always with us. He's there when we sin, when we're anxious. He's there when you're lonely, when you're unfaithful. He's there when you're unfruitful or confused or troubled. And all of those can be solved by the awareness and dependence on the permanent abiding presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We finished last time with a quote from A.W. Tozer that I want to read again. It's so convicting. He said this, 
It may be said without qualification that every man is as holy and full of the Holy Spirit as he wants to be. He may not be as full as he wishes he were, but he is certainly as full as he wants to be, end quote. Can we increase our want and our desire to be influenced and pervaded by the Holy Spirit's presence, to listen to his promptings that find their way into our minds by his word and to do it together in accountability, in correction, in solidarity, and in siblings struggle with each other to do this in our own hearts and with one another. Father, give us the grace we need to be obedient for you. In Jesus' name, amen.